Hey, podcast listeners, this is Todd Finley, the founder of HBCU Grad. Thank you for listening to another episode. This episode is really, 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 really good. We have Dr. Hadia Nicole Green, and she has found a cure for cancer. And as you know, as you probably could guess, a black woman with a cure for cancer, uh, she's having fundraising issues. They don't want that to go on the record. So we talked about everything. Uh, she has a great story. She has great insights. She's uh, just a dynamic person. So hope you enjoyed the episode. All right. Today we have a very, 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 very special guest, and that is Dr. Hadia Nicole Green. Dr. Green is, Ameri- is an American medical physicist that developed a method using laser as a cancer treatment. I'm pretty sure we'll talk about that more later. She's one of 66 Black women to earn a Ph.D. in physics in the U.S. between 1973 and 2012. She is the second Black woman to earn a degree in physics from the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Dr. Green, what is it within you that makes you a high achiever? Oh, well, before I answer that, Todd, let me say thank you so much for allowing me and inviting me to come on your platform to share the word about what we're doing. Uh, it's a, it's um, an honor to have this interview with you. Thank you so much. The HBCU grad platform is special. I enjoy your posts all the time. So I'm excited to be here today. And I wanted to say that. Um, I think I got that inner Madam C.J. Walker gene in my body. Uh, I just had this dream and my my dream was to develop a better way to to treat cancer. And even before that, I guess I was a high achiever. I graduated undergrad with a 4.0 in physics. So it, it's just this, this inner desire to be excellent, to do my best. And initially, it was just because I enjoy learning. I enjoy the satisfaction that I did my best just as a personal... Um, it's just, I don't know. It's just, and I was raised like that, I guess, orally raised me from age four. And she would say, don't do anything halfway and you know, give your best or don't do it at all. And so that has stayed with me all of these years. And so I go in, I think I, I'm competitive because I grew up with brothers but I'm competitive in the sense where I'm not cutthroat where I don't, I want the whole team to win. And I do believe in finding a win-win for everyone. However, I do have to acknowledge that I'm, I'm pretty competitive. I don't, I don't like to lose. My brother says I'm stubborn more than I'm competitive. So if I set my mind to something that I want to accomplish that goal, um, no matter what, and I'm a figure it out type of woman, as opposed to, quit uh, a quitter however i will admit that there have been times when i quit and i've had to have my support system encourage me and love me back up and say if you don't cure cancer and all these cancer patients keep dying every year because you quit shame on you and what if you don't get into heaven because you didn't do your purpose on the planet (laughs) so so there have been times where i it's been hard but i think more than 
being the, the high achiever just for the sake of it, my faith and my belief that it's possible makes me get back up on time after I've given up and, and I'll get back in there and say, you know what? And, and the other thing that inspires me is seeing people who are differently abled, who may not have all the function and activity of their limbs and they get out there and they like compete in Olympic level competitions as an athlete. And I'm like, wow, if you could be uh, an athlete in a wheelchair, I don't have any business complaining about whatever it is that I'm doing with all the activity of my limbs. So those little things keep me going to do my best when I see other people who um, push, like I get a lot of inspiration from athletes and, and entertainers like Beyonce or Michael Jackson. When they are in, in rehearsal for like hours and hours and hours and they're or in, on the basketball court with Michael Jordan, like practicing over and over. When I see them doing that, I'm like, okay, if they can do that for their profession, I can do that for cancer. Mm, makes sense. Now, when you look at people to surround you, mm. are you looking for people that are similar to you? Maybe that are just as competitive, maybe just in, in another way? Or are you looking for people that complement your skills? So that's a great question. So the people I like to keep around me, I like people who have a pure heart. And it doesn't matter how smart you are, how accomplished you are. And I know there are a lot of um, wealthy people who say you shouldn't be the smartest person in your room or get a new circle of friends or, you know, surround yourself by people who are better than you. Um, but because I've had so many mentors and I've had so many porn, pe so many people pour into me, it's more important to me to have good hearted people, good natured people around who want to do good on the planet. Like I have an adopted mom who's 82 years old. And the reason why I adopted her is not because she's rich and famous or, you know, is part of Mensa or some intellectually super powered superhero, but literally like she cares about the whales and planting trees and rescuing animals and recycling and global warming and and she you know donates to and, and to a variety of different nonprofits to help with their mission it's just you know a little bit every month and and, and when i was watching her as a teenager and as a young adult i would see her give christmas to families and buy winter coats to children in shelters who didn't have coats and so she sets the bar for the quality of people that i have around me and it's not that all of my friends are like that but there's something about everybody in my circle that makes them a special person on the planet and their contribution to the world is beautiful and it's not necessarily things that make headline news, but all of my friends are service-minded. All of my or my volunteers for my nonprofit, they all have the heart to serve and they all want to do good on the planet. They all want to see the planet better when they leave than how they found it. And that's the part that I look at. If people are good people, that's what matters to me, not how much money they make, which in, in fundraising, people say, oh, you need to network with the affluent people. And, 
and I don't have a lot of affluent people in my network because sometimes the character alignment is off. And, and so I've been praying my way through, how do I raise the money I need to eradicate cancer while still keeping my soul pure? That makes a lot of sense. Now, have you ever made any mistakes on thinking that someone had a pure heart? That's the first part of my question. And then what have you seen in people initially that can be a telltale sign that they they probably have a pure heart? Okay, so good question. The reason why I started laughing at the first question because my first answer was, yes, I've made mistakes, but usually in my personal dating life. You're right. You're right. We all have. <laughs> I was like, I thought you were a nice guy. You're right. You're right. Kind of artist. You're right. <laughs> but I, I, I say that jokingly, but I think um, there are people who present in a way that's disingenuous. And what um <laughs> so my my godmom she always tells me that i'll i learn as i'm interacting with people and my nature is to pay attention to details and so after a while i'll i'll see something and she says well now you have enough information to make a decision and so i um i'm i don't claim and i don't think i have like an instant ability to judge a person's character. I do give people an opportunity. And as my aunt who raised me would say, give each person enough rope to hang themselves. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and mm -hmm. what that means is instead of prejudging people, give everyone an opportunity to prove to you who they are. And if they will be eliminated from your life, they will hang themselves with that rope. If you give them enough rope to um, come in, they'll end up hanging themselves with it. Right, right, makes sense. Yeah, and 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 I get. I think the analogy comes. Um, I, I went to this African-inspired wedding one time, and they put the rope around the couple, and one person pulled on one end, and the other person pulled on another end. And when you pull the rope and create the tension, it was supposed to bring the two people together. And, and I'm tying that to, if you give somebody rope <laughs> that's supposed to pull you together, they will end up hanging themselves if their intentions aren't good. You're right. That's a good way to put it. Good yeah. way to put it. Now, tell me who you had you a second were... question. Um, there was a second part to that last question. But it was, it was you pretty much answered it. It was, mo it was basically... Um, what do you like? What can you like? What are the telltale signs that let you know that someone is pure hearted? And you um, just it takes you a while to figure it out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you <give> okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So tell me who Hadia Nicole was before she was Dr. Green. Like, like what was your, like? Who were you growing up? T take me all the way back. Okay, good question. So. Um, when I was a little girl, my biological mom passed away when I was 18 months. I didn't know my biological father. And before I found out who he was, he passed away. So I never got a chance to meet him. My maternal grandparents took my two brothers and I in. 
and they both passed away in the same year when I was four years old. So my aunt, Laura Lee Smith, and her husband, General Lee Smith, took me in after raising eight children of their own. Took my brothers and I in after raising eight children of their own. So I became number 11 in the family. And I grew up as a tomboy. My brothers treated me like the third brother. (laughs) And I um, was fascinated and played with bugs and climbed trees and pop willies. And I still did little things like double dutch and um, hopscotch with chalk on the sidewalk. Uh, I grew up in St. Louis in um, an all-Black neighborhood. And the, the, the parts about my childhood that I think most attributed to me being where I am now was when I was in kindergarten, my brother was in fourth grade and he used to have me do his homework. Wow. So I got on this accelerated track and he ended up repeating the fourth grade. I became the first in the family to graduate from college. Um, and that my love for learning came from him. And may he rest in peace. He actually passed as I was starting graduate school from natural causes, but he gave me my love for learning. He made learning fun. And everything was like, oh, you can do it. You can do it. I bet you can figure it out. And it was like the call out and the challenge. Yeah, you got this. You got this. And he would literally cheerlead while I was doing the problems. And when I would come back, I'm like, oh, I did it. I did it. Let me see if you get it right. And so he's like, okay, next time, don't miss any. And, And he would push me like a little brother, but he made me tough. And he would pick fights with me. And I'm like, you know, I don't want to fight. You don't fight. Sometimes you don't need to fight. You don't want to fight, but you have to fight. And so he would push me and he was like, he was my first bully. (laughs) And and he would make me, now mind you, he was like twice my size, but he would make Mm -hmm. me like make a fist, you know, throw a punch. And he had me so tough (laughs) as a little kid. And, Mm -hmm. and those things, I guess maybe made that competitive side of me come out because I'm I, I won't pick a fight, but if someone's picking a fight, I will fight the fight for a right cause. Um, mm-hmm. Let's see. When I was so when I was in middle school, I was cheerleader and co-captain and SGA president. I was okay. in Future Business Leaders of America. And then when I went to high school, I was class president all four years in high school. I was on the mock trial team. We placed as um, state champions or placed in the state championship competition, I should say. I um, this girl in my high school, I was a sprinter, but I tore, I hyperextended one knee and tore the ACL in another knee. And that's when I'm going to go to college on the track scholarship I thought so I better buckle down and get my grades up so I can get a scholarship Mm -hmm. and that's what set me on the path to making sure my grades and I ended up um, getting a full academic scholarship to Alabama A&M University Uh, go Bulldogs (laughs) (laughs) and um, and that was that's the 
yeah so i guess that's the the short version there are probably more details but yeah that's right. some of my background that led me here and when i was at alabama and university i interned at nasa i interned at university of rochester institute of optics and i worked in one of the the physics labs on campus so mm -hmm. i had all of this experience and the day well, actually, this was another fun fact. I think you know, but I was Miss Alabama A&M University and served as queen for a year. <laughs> and the the cool part about that, I'll tell you, I um, wore head wraps all the time back then. And I took that Afrocentric definition of a queen and took being Miss Alabama A&M back to queen status, back to Africa, when queens were leaders. And so I changed the dynamic of how Miss Alabama A&M was in that era. Mm -hmm. And instead of having the big white ball gowns for my coronation, I said, everybody wear African attire. So we had like a coming to America style coronation when I was around Miss A&M. And it was literally legendary. People still talk about that now. And during my homecoming speech, I had the whole stadium, if you can imagine, the stadium full of people at homecoming shouting Harambe seven times. It was powerful. And for those who may not know, Harambe is Swahili for come together. So, yeah. um, and I was also part of the Pan-African Alliance. So a lot of these things shaped who and how I am. And another major part of my upbringing and my transition and coming of age was Delta Sigma Theta mentored me as a Deltine as um, I went through this rites of passage program that was a year long training on how to be a woman, how to become a woman. I was 18 years old and my 17 to 18 years old. And they instilled in us the sense of responsibility to the community, no matter where we go on the planet. And these are the things that inform how and why I'm doing my business model the way I am now. So um, for those who may not know, this all of this led up to um, my aunt and uncle both having experiences with cancer and me developing a technology that eradicates cancer and we've shown it works in mice. And instead of going the for-profit route, I've turned down investors and started a nonprofit to raise the money to keep this technology affordable and accessible for the community, especially people who look like me with backgrounds like mine. And I said, you know, with, so a lot of people never take the time to ask me about kind of my, my prior journey that shaped my philosophy of why am I how I am now? And all of these things led to how I am now. When it's so easy to be a follower and it's so easy to be the treasurer in high school, when it's so easy to just be a part of student government, when it's easy to be a part of the court, why do you see it as important to be a leader? Because you held leadership positions from 9th, 10th, 11th, and 12th, and then Miss Alabama A&M. So 
it was in you pure. When you talk about pure, ninth, tenth, eleventh grade, that's pretty pure. You and didn't see even eighth else. grade as yeah, really the co-captain and student government president in eighth grade. So even in eighth grade, like, um, like, why did you see it so important to be a leader? Um, my my brother would say because I'm bossy. <laughs> um, and I always have ideas on how I think things should be. Mm-hmm. I may be very opinionated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. there is a, a part of me that always wants to see things. I, I naturally am always innovating. I'm always, how do we improve this? How do we? do better? How can we make this greater? That's my default question. And it's not that I'm never satisfied. It's just, I like the spirit of excellence. And so, Mm -hmm. um, but I think maybe at the bottom of it, and I'm, I'm not mean bossy. I'm just a visionary. And I usually have a vision for how I think something can be at its best and that has been a recurring theme but the other part i do have an innate desire to serve i do have an innate um i, I get a satisfaction from being helpful and sometimes i find i can only insert that help when I'm influencing decisions. And do you think think there's a fundamental difference in someone that would, that gets more pleasure out of saying thank you than someone that gets more pleasure out of saying you're welcome? Because you, I think, would love to say you're welcome. And some people love to say thank you. So that is a very profound insight and rarely in life can I honestly say I've never thought about that but that is very profound very insightful so I I get great satisfaction from the task that would cause someone to say thank you and I'm saying you're welcome to them I do get great satisfaction from that. And I, I'm a giver. My spirit is to, that's one of my love languages, acts of services, acts of service. That's how I show love. So my life is set up around that as a practice. And my adopted godmom, she would say, um, like we would talk about random acts of kindness. And as an adult, I've adopted that to random acts of service. Because it's not always my thought process that I'm doing this to be kind, but there are times when I can do things to be of service. And I've built my career now around being of service to help people. And that more than money, brings me satisfaction that I'm making a difference on the planet. Talk to me a little bit more about Oralee Smith. Okay. 
So, you know, most people for years since I started my nonprofit never asked me about Orly Smith. And I was getting prepared for my acceptance speech when BET wanted to honor me two years ago for um, being a breast cancer advocate. And one of our volunteers, her name is Yvette, she was helping me with my speech. And she said, you know, you never talk about Orly and who she was. You gotta start telling her story. And she's like, you always go into detail about your uncle and how he lost 150 pounds and all of his hair and all of his eyelashes and his experience in horror with chemo and radiation. And all you say about her is that she said that she would rather die than experience the side effects of chemo and radiation. And I boohooed and cried because I didn't realize until that moment that I hadn't been telling her story because it was painful. And part of my therapy, because I do believe in therapy, I do believe that mental health is just as important as physical and emotional and financial health. Um, but one of my therapists suggested that grieving happens in different ways. And sometimes it's easier to grieve when you do something in your loved one's honor. So naming my nonprofit after Lee Smith, who raised me, my aunt who raised me, it was my way to honor her memory, honor her legacy. Um, and it was part of my therapy. And there was this article in Essence, they interviewed me and it was all about turning tragedy into triumph. And, and how do you heal when you go through something this devastating and my faith has been uh, a huge part of that. And honoring her memory has been a huge part of that. But her story is, is actually very profound. It really is the ordinary black grandmama story. She was born in 1932. She had a third grade education. She, which uh, what I'm finding is back then, a third grade education was really the equivalent of a PhD. And they had everybody in one classroom in the schoolhouse and they had an outhouse and she picked cotton. And it, her beginnings were so humble. But she, and, she, and she had spiritual intuition, spiritual gifts, and she had what she called mother wit. Mm -hmm. And this mother wit is this concept, a lot of young people don't even know what it is, but it's this knowingness of how to do things and how to make things happen. So she ended up um, being a mother of eight, owning a restaurant successfully, had some health issues and her restaurant closed while she was in the hospital, unfortunately. Um, and my uncle was her second husband, but she in her later years was the glue that held our family together. She was our matriarch in the family. She was the cooker of Christmas and Thanksgiving dinner. She was a church going, praying woman of God. She fed people in the neighborhood. You could not come in her house and leave hungry. She would make sure, baby, you okay? You need something to eat? Sit down, let me fix you a plate. And everybody 
excuse me, who knew her, loved her. And the people in the neighborhood, when they talk about her, they say, oh, Miss Smith, you can always go get food at her house. And even if it was just a popsicle out the back door because she didn't want you letting all the air out in the summertime. Mm -hmm. <laughs> she took care of people, right? Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and her humility centered me in beauty is as beauty does. Mm -hmm. And how are you... Um, your character mattered. And she taught me to pray for people when they've lost their way instead of judging them and to help people out when they're having a hard way. And baby, sometimes people can't, they just can't help themselves. And, you know, and, and her heart was of service, even though she never got an award or never had anything named after her. She poured so much into her family and she sacrificed herself for her family and she loved everybody. And my brother, the one who used to bully me, he would say, oh, I bet you I can make her bad. Just <laughs> like so, your brother. <laughs> he was so mischievous and he would do stuff and, and we would see her lose it, lose it and yell at him. It's just like, what you stop? But the part that made that funny is if you can imagine 99.9% of the time, she's this sweet lady who right. never gets mad at anybody. But my brother would bring it up. <laughs> I didn't get a laugh. Right. <laughs> so, but she was, she was a good person who... I will say, experience the challenges of being a black woman, being a black person in America who struggled, who overcame obstacles, who wasn't afforded opportunities and created her path. And she actually cleaned houses for a living after she didn't, after she lost her restaurant. And what she said to me was, you need to have a way to earn an honest living. And it doesn't matter how much money you make, but do it honestly. And her value system was priceless because it was all about your character, your morals, and yeah. having God be pleased with what you're doing on the planet and, and how you're living. And, oh, I remember, I'll tell you this. So when I went to... When I started learning history, I started questioning some of the things that I was taught. So I came in one day and I said, Auntie, why you got this picture of white Jesus up? <laughs> and I'm like, Jesus was black. <laughs> and she said, this Jesus was good enough for me. Good enough for your mama, good enough for your grandmama. And now you're trying to tell me that this Jesus ain't good enough for you. I said, it's the same Jesus, but why you got to be painted white? Mm -hmm. Jesus don't have a color. He look white with blind and blue eyes in his picture. Right. <laughs> and so right. I know there were times where I gave her a headache about stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But I always ask those kind of questions growing up. And and even when I was younger, I would ask a million questions. And she got a set of encyclopedias from the um, white people whose house she cleaned. And 
she gave me the set of encyclopedias so I could stop asking her a million questions. <laughs> but she, yeah, she was resourceful. And I know those things help shape my journey. And I'm grateful that she sacrificed for my brothers and I. Um, and the reason why it was important when she, um, when I was her caregiver and watching what she experienced with cancer in her last three months of her life and then with my uncle, why I named my foundation after her was because too seldomly do regular black women become a champion for just being amazing as, as women, as mothers, as wives, as members of the community and serving in church. And I said, if we can have a Susan G, we can have an Oralee. And why is Susan G Coleman so special? And, and I'm like, I don't even know anything about her, but if we can have a Susan G, why can't we have an Oralee? And I'm actually really inspired by the founder of Susan G Coleman because she named this foundation after her sister who passed from cancer. And so I said, well, I can name a foundation after my aunt who passed from cancer. And this is, um, I think it's important to have everyday black heroes and to celebrate the matriarchs of our family who have these thankless jobs of making sure that we eat every day and we have clothes. And she didn't care about name brands, but she made sure that we were clean and decent every day. Right. Right. I, I'm thankful to her because I never went hungry. I never knew not having electricity and we weren't rich by any stretch of the imagination, but right. she made sure that she stretched. So if we didn't have a lot, she made a bag of beans and cornbread and she taught me how to cook. So I think I'm one of the only people I know under 40 that can still make cornbread from scratch and <laughs> how to pinto beans straight from the dry beans, not the can. We did macros and microwaves and cable. <laughs> um, I didn't know what Jiffy was until I was almost 20 years old. <laughs> and so I could make cakes from scratch and I pick collard greens. I have vivid memories of picking collards, spinach, spinach, wow. um, turnips, uh, mustards. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we have this big old bag right. of greens. But like it right. went down to this little bitty pot like we worked all day with this little pot. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> I remember when she right. had to go over, she was like, uh-uh, you gotta make sure there's no grit and get all mm -hmm. get clean the greens mm -hmm. right. <laughs> right. So she um she had high standards and and her integrity her character are what i love and we pulled the the people who helped me with the brand design they pulled in what i'm doing and my character with her character and that became the foundation of our organization right you seem to pull a lot from the elders and the ancestors. Yes. And you're a giver. Mm -hmm. So I know that you probably mentor a lot of youth. While mentoring youth, what themes have you seen that have you either worried or encouraged? Okay, good question. So 
the young people who seek me out to mentor them are actually quite exceptional. Okay. And I'm pretty impressed with them as standing out from the pack. Um, with young people in general, I think because now we're we're interfacing with young people who have only grown up with electronic devices and who didn't grow up going outside to play. And they've been part of this unofficial social experiment to um, engage on social media more than they engage with people with face-to-face -face conversation. And my, my concern is the actual, because like Facebook and social media was supposed to bring us closer together. But the downside of that is the in-person ability to be close together has been compromised because a lot of people, young people don't know how to have a face-to-face -face conversation and engaging and hugging and making eye contact and having a sense of humor. Um, those things may become lost arts. Um, and that's part of the reason why I think it's important to maintain relationships with the elders that say, put your device down when you're having a meal and make eye contact and tell me, use your words, tell me how you feel, how you doing, what's going on with you. Those right. things, because that intergenerational communication is so important because I think it's absolutely amazing what technology has done. And I think it's also important to stay rooted in connection and spirit and yeah. and staying connected to ancestors. So the things that I'm proud of with my mentees are their like one of my mentees, I'm gonna shout out Maya Catherine. She just graduated from Howard and <laughs> <laughs> she is an amazing young woman who gives me hope. She's been working with my foundation now a few months. And she was actually part of when we did the HBCU grad takeover for our fundraising day a while ago. She was the one who put all of the, um, the, the stories together. She made the flyers and she did a couple little commercials for us. She's amazing all around with she her. Is. Yeah, and it's been a joy working with her. But because she graduated with a 3-7 as a biology major, I've been grooming her and training her to come into my lab at Morehouse School of Medicine. Mm -hmm. And I recruited her to apply for the PhD program in our biomedical science department so that she can get her PhD under me. Nice. Yeah, and so nice. she's been working with me and proofreading grants and manuscripts. So in the last few months, we just applied for almost $8 million in grant funding from the National Science Foundation, National Cancer Institute, and the Department of Veteran Affairs. So prayerfully, our yep. efforts will be rewarded and yep. we can get the money we need to, to start our human trials and supplement our fundraising efforts through the nonprofit. Um, but what I appreciate about her is how committed she is. 
her nickname is Night Shift because she'll say, and she said when she started, Dr. Green, I can't be up at 8 a.m. if you need me to, but I do my best work at night. So <laughs> if you give me some grace, I promise I'll do my assignments, but I'm usually really good at like 9 p.m. So I'll give her an assignment and I'll go to sleep. And by the time I'm waking up at 4 a.m., she's going to sleep <laughs> and we'll text and email back and forth. And every morning I'll have her assignment in my inbox and a text message that she completed her assignment and any questions. And <laughs> it's, awesome. it's really been awesome. But I, I really like the younger generation's ability to use technology to solve problems and, yeah. and really, you know, get into um, how creative they are with things. Cause she can, you know, transition from social media to grant writing without missing a beat. So I'm really proud of her contributions as a young person. Cause a lot of the times young people come in and it's challenging for me because I want to mentor them, but they don't keep showing up week after week. And, and Maya does. So I want to commend her as being a standout young person, a standout volunteer, a standout HBCU grad, like, yeah. oh, Maya, thank you. I, yeah. I really have grown to love this young woman. Um, and look at her as a daughter. And she's like, you're yeah. not old enough to be my mom. And I'm like, I am old enough to be your mom. Right. <laughs> you don't look old. Good answer. Yeah. That's why. Yeah. Like, Good answer, right. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> you know, where are the opportunities in science? Because you only have a certain amount of time, a certain amount of energies, things that you want to focus on. And then, you know, you're brilliant. So we need you tackling really big, big problems. Where do you see opportunity where if you had endless time that you would tackle? So, okay. So let me start. So my Orly Smith Cancer Research Foundation, we are actively raising money to begin human trials with the technology I developed that has shown complete elimination of human cancer and laboratory mice. And we get cancer patients who are trying to sign up to receive this treatment. And there are nearly 9 million people a year who are dying from cancer every year who need something other than what's currently offered. So we're actively trying to, not actively trying, but we're actively raising money to reach our first $10 million fundraising goal that will mm -hmm. empower us and give us the resources we need to begin our first inhuman clinical trials so that we can get take the technology out of the laboratory into hospitals. So for us right now, it's in that translational commercialization phase of going from bench to bedside and taking technology forward. Um, and that's where my priorities are. Um, and we actually just got a, a paper accepted and we actually haven't shared this publicly yet, but we just got a paper accepted in the International Journal of Oncology about the technology. So thank you. We'll um, put that out soon and, and make the announcement and, and do um, a little bit of a, a victory dance because that's a huge accomplishment. It's my first mm -hmm. paper as the senior author, as oh, the wow. boss. <laughs> Yes. That's awesome. That is congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. I'm excited about that. Now, the other way I want to answer your question, I think it's important for scientists to develop solutions 
for the plastic um, bags and plastic bottles that have polluted the ocean to develop solutions for global warming, global warming to develop solutions for to, to make it easier, more effective to recycle, to uh, have safer, greener technologies or, or solutions to do little things like pesticides and um, to, to get rid of weed weeds in the lawn. And, and part of the reason why that's important is because uh, sometimes the chemicals that we're using for day-to-day -day activities cause cancer. So we need effective natural solutions that don't cause cancer. And scientists are the ones that come up with that. Um, I was just talking about to one of my other volunteers, shout out to Tracy, um, who was telling me, she's like, well, we need you to stay well because when you finish curing cancer, you still got more work to do. I was like, Tracy, yeah, I'm just trying to be a one hit wonder. What are you talking about? <laughs> Where did it go to the beach <laughs> and run from her games when I need to? What is this? <laughs> you're talking right. about uh you got you want more out of me she was like well you said that you were planning a career in revolutionizing the way we receive cable and internet she was like well this pandemic has shown us that we need better internet <laughs> we need you to develop it and i was like oh tracy so, <laughs> so <laughs> let, me, let me give that idea somebody else <laughs> really good <laughs> Now, you know, I don't, I don't consume a lot of content, but, you know, I've been aware of you for a while. And then when we collaborated two or three months ago, you know, I became more aware and, you know, started to, you know, look a little bit more. And I've seen you out here and I've seen you talking, I've seen you uh, on different platforms and oftentimes scientists aren't business people mm. and business people aren't scientists. Mm -hmm. Well, what have you learned while branding and marketing and doing outreach? Like, does it come natural? Are there any insights that you can share for another scientist that may want to do things outside of the lab? So that is a great question. Um, I took a course for uh, it's about a year at Emory called Fast Track. And this course was designed for academic scientists to start companies. Because there's a whole community of academic scientists who are also entrepreneurs. And there are a lot of, there's a lot of support for us. And there's the Small Business Administration and their whole job is to help small businesses get started. Mm -hmm. um, the other part about that that's really cool is I have mentors who have been successful in business and I interviewed them before I got started. And I did a whole lot of research on the front end about my business model because I think it's like the measure twice and cut once philosophy, get mm -hmm. all the information that you can up front. And everybody I knew who had ever developed something, invented something, including the, the um, black scientists who invented the super soaker, um, uh, um, Brother Johnson, I'm trying to think of his first name, Lonnie Johnson, Lonnie Johnson, who invented the super soaker and 
um, my mentors and uh, all the scientists I knew who had developed something while I was in graduate school and I saw what they were doing. There are so many disgruntled scientists and black inventors who have had their technology stolen from them or the business people who are good at business, not science. Those were the people who got rich and the scientists were still poor and disgruntled in their senior years. And so one of the things that for me, when I started looking at who's raising the type of money, pharmaceutical industries have it, but the cancer nonprofits between Susan G. Komen and American Cancer Society, they're raising over a billion dollars a year with no cures to show for it. And I said, well, they are filtering the money, raising money for a cure. And it's like this with a lot of other diseases. And then the money filters through and then filters through and filters through. And every filter, that dollar that goes to science is being diluted. So I would love to see more scientists get the training to be the entrepreneurs, to be the founders of nonprofits so that the money can go straight to the scientists instead of having to go through the president, CEO, the whole organizational structure and have literally with no exaggeration, 75, sometimes to 80 or 90% of the money raised go to overhead. And then only having 10 to 25% go to the actual research. So um, I would encourage and I would love to see more scientists develop that business savvy because it is a skill. Now, let me also say I've found that my intuition has served me well to guide the decisions that we make and how we spend our time. And one of the things that I've been telling my team is Everybody thought we would have raised $10 million by now because we've seen people raise money for a wall in four days. And and why is it taking us so long? And, and I've had other people say it's because I'm a Black woman. And I do realize people see me and greet me with skepticism instead of benefit of the doubt. And so it doesn't matter that I have three degrees in physics and graduated with a 4.0 GPA and that I... I got a million dollar grant from the government for my research already from the Department of Veteran Affairs or that I was named as one of the 100 most influential women of the century with Eleanor Roosevelt (laughs) and Hillary Clinton and the notorious RVG. Like some of that is still not enough. And it's like I can't achieve enough to some people for them to become a monthly donor, give me the benefit of the doubt that even though these other nonprofits, these other cancer nonprofits don't have a thing to show for it, it's a feel good movement because you got a t-shirt and you participated in a walk. And if if that's what it's going to take for us to cure cancer, to get t-shirts and walks, okay. But I was hoping that showing pictures of a tumor shrinking in a mouse and showing that we actually can kill cancer in the lab would inspire more people to just donate because we've already developed a technology that kills cancer and we're not just raising money for hope and awareness that you need to get tested early, which you should get tested. And early detection does save lives. That is important. And we still need better answers to cancer, which this is one. And so we are ushering in a new era of how cancer is treated and need that support, that financial support. 
so our our platform and just for the shameless plug while we're talking and i'm sure you're going to ask me to repeat this again our website for anyone who wants to know how to support is orally.org and we're on cash app in venmo at orally foundation o-r-a-l-e-e foundation and orally.org so you can ask me i'm sure you will <laughs> about that again but since i was talking about it i said let me put that out here now so I think it's important for people to know that I have a nonprofit and that message usually gets lost when people are either fascinated by my story or they're proud of me or they're saying, well, clearly the celebrities are going to fund this. So clearly the government is going to fund this. And if this is true, then she should have the money that she needs. But if you can imagine a world where a black woman cured cancer and people said, yeah, maybe not, because somebody else would fund this. So that is where we are. And I want to say thank you to the 15,000 people of the millions of people who seen what who have seen what I'm doing. There have been about 15,000 people who have donated. And those 15,000 people helped us make history and break a record. I'm one of the first 30 Three, I think I became the 33rd African-American woman to raise a million dollars or more for a tech startup. So I thank all my donors. We did this with no paid employees. We're all volunteer team at the Lee Smith Cancer Research Foundation, which makes it even more remarkable because it was less than a hundred of us pulling together week after week. And I have to thank Karen Hunter for being our largest champion and the Karen Rebels really getting us over the top and Ricky Smiley and Roland Martin for helping us. And there have been a host of other people who are championing our cause. And our goal, our dream, my vision, my dream is to one day be the cancer charity of choice for everybody who really wants to see change with cancer. Yeah. So that's the goal and the vision. And I would love to see more scientists take the initiative to take control of their destiny mm -hmm. instead of waiting for crumbs to fall from the table from people who may have other agendas. Right. Now, I know you have, we've touched on it a little bit, but I know you have a core life methodology and dominant logic and strategy that determines your capability and the people around you. What's your thesis that stirs and motivates people within your sphere? and outside your sphere, because I know when I, you know, just peaked, I wanted to be a little undereducated in our conversation so I could just follow my curiosity, but I knew that I wanted to be prepared and sharp and come a certain way because of the energy that you give out virtually. Mm. Then working with the people that work with you, everyone seems on point. Everyone seems to be pure. Everyone seems to have a glass half full mentality. Yes. What's your thesis that allows people to buy into your vision, thesis, however you want to put it? And what is it that allows people outside your sphere to do the same thing? So I can say most of the people who work with us, who volunteer with us, have been personally impacted by cancer or they see me as a black woman and they see this un, 
unbelievable hurdle. And no, because I'm a black woman doing it, that I just need support. So I personally onboard every volunteer and every donor has personally heard my voice and heard my story and donated because they saw my heart and they connected with, I'm just an everyday black woman raised by an everyday black woman in an everyday black family who's lost loved ones to cancer. And because of that and having been fortunate enough to graduate college as the first in my family to go to college, but to graduate with three degrees and no student loans. I feel especially blessed and responsible for making sure that my contributions benefit the world as a way to say thank you for the blessings that I've gotten. Um, my volunteers are amazing and they don't come with excuse me, what can I, how can I benefit from this? They all come with the spirit of how can I help? How can I serve? Um, what do you need me to do? And most of our volunteers have lost a mom, a husband, a sister, a brother, a child even, or they themselves are cancer survivor. And some of them are battling cancer right now. And our, our volunteers who live with cancer keep me motivated day in, day out, because I know Desiree needs this now. I know that, and I, I won't call the other names because they haven't been public, um, but Desiree has shared her story on our, on our social media, and she's been public about her story. That keeps me humble that like we literally are all here together for one cause, one vision that there can be a better way to treat cancer. And the technology that I've developed, they've seen the results and it's out on our social media at Dr. Hadia Green at Orly or it's on our website at orly.org. The, their videos, there's footage of it, of us literally shrinking tumors, inducing tumor regression. And so it's not just, I'm passionate about changing cancer. Before I even came to ask for money, I already showed that I could kill cancer with the technology I developed. And it's a different position. I'm not coming from a position of fund my idea, which is what most fundraising goes to, funding an idea. I'm saying fund something tangible that I've already developed. So you're not funding the research you're funding the beginning of human trials with the technology that's already working. And because it's not a pipe dream of something that may happen 20, 30, 40 years or next lifetime, like we're literally within 12 months of beginning our first human trial. We're literally on the brink. Wow. And we have the clinical partners in a variety of cancer, including breast, prostate, colorectal, head and neck, uh, lung, anal, pancreatic, cervical, and you can name any variety of solid tumors. We have clinical partners who are ready to begin our human trials right now. They can't fund it, but they can conduct it. So I need the community to help us 
raise the money to ensure that this technology remains affordable and accessible. And the reason why that's important, and this is also something that helps people connect with what we're doing, is because um, is because when the EpiPen was affordable and their stakeholders raised the price, it became unaffordable for people who needed it. Unnecessarily unaffordable. And they went to court and the court mandated that they make their prices affordable. But the danger in doing that with my technology is there's too much at risk. People can die when they don't have access to affordable health care. And that's important. And if ever there was a time for me to be stubborn, it's this. And I have turned down investors. And that's another point that makes people support and believe in this. It's because I've turned down investors because I believe that the nonprofit model can raise the money because I'm looking at the billion dollars a year other cancer nonprofits are raising without exaggeration, literally a billion dollars a year. So of all the people who are, not even all, if a 10% of the people who currently donate to the major cancer nonprofits started donating their annual gifts to the Orally Foundation, we could end an era of people unnecessarily dying from cancer because they didn't have a good enough treatment. How important is this election for you personally and for what you're doing in science? So that's an excellent question. I typically keep my political beliefs to myself because our 501c3 nonprofit status mandates that I have that we are impartial and um, don't have any biases. So why, why do you why do you think that is that that sounds like a rule that was put in place, you know, not recently. So part of why I think that is, I would say, um, you have people from all walks of life who may donate to an organization, and if you have views that are on one side or the other, it can influence your donor base. So part of my, um, I thought that was a small trade-off to be able to raise the money we need without trading equity through a nonprofit. Because, and, and at this point I will say, I am my own woman as Hadia, Dr. Hadia Nicole Green. And then I am the founder of a nonprofit with 501c3 status. So I'm going to shift and answer this question as a woman, not as the founder. I think it is important to have leaders in government who believe in science. That is on the ballot this time around. Because there are clearly people who believe in science and clearly people who don't. And anybody who's been awake and alive knows what I mean without me having to say more. All right. Makes sense. If someone <laughs> wants to be the next Dr. Green, what steps should they take? What talents should they have? 
What actions should they take? So I'll tell you, and this comes from one of my biggest influences and biggest sources of inspiration. This comes from Oprah. Don't try to be the next Dr. Green. Just like she would say, don't try to be the next Oprah. Be your best you and show up on the planet with your authentic self, with the things that God gave you or spirit gave you to manifest and find out what inspires you. Find out what makes you unique, what makes you special, what things do you uniquely bring to the table that can make the world a better place, that only maybe only you can do, the things that will make you great. Because maybe trying to be the next me, you missed the boat. Maybe you're the one who's supposed to cure diabetes. Maybe you're the one that's supposed to cure coronavirus instead of giving us a vaccine. And maybe you're the one that develops a cheaper, more accessible, rapid um, coronavirus test. Because I, I, I don't like the nose swab. I want to be able to spin the cup <laughs> and the color turn blue. So I hope yeah. somebody can come up with that so I can screen you at the door instead of these... Um, forehead temperature scans that I'm like, well, four out, of people, four out of five people don't even have symptoms, so why are you taking my temperature at the door? That's the first. But, you know, that's just my opinion as a scientist. Uh, <laughs> and, so, and so I want to, you know, spin the cup and have the color change if you're positive or like a pregnancy test. I want, mm-hmm. I want it to be that fast and that cheap. So maybe that's what you're supposed to do. Not be the next Dr. Green. Be right. the next, next best you and if that means reinventing yourself and some people may be too young but like mary j blige she reinvented herself a couple times if you need to reinvent yourself do that and but be your best greatest self without and the race isn't with your neighbor because there was a point when i was in graduate school and i'm like man all of my friends are already graduated some of my friends didn't go to graduate school and they're making ninety thousand a year every year and i'm in grad school making like twenty thousand a year and oh like you know it's not fair and what happened over time i still became the first of my peer group to win a million dollar grant and then, so it's not about where you think you are in comparison to other people if you focus on your own race and put the blinders on it and come up with what your goal in life is and just focus on that that's why i think excellence happens when you're doing what you were created to do whether you know that's inventing the next newest best internet or the next best cell phone or you know i want to be able to hover through traffic without driving on the streets anymore (laughs) so you know there are so many things that people can do and i think people miss the the boat when they're trying to be like somebody else and there are times and to answer your question because i know because of Michael Jordan, there was Kobe Bryant, right? right. And so let me, let me give the more concrete answer of do your homework before it's due. Ask questions, pay attention, like literally be your best self and make studying a joy and learn everything. Because I didn't just get all of what I'm doing because I was good in physics, but I also had enough understanding of chemistry and biology and problem solving and critical thinking and analytical skills that all of that came together. And and being able to make cakes from scratch and cornbread from scratch helped me be good with chemistry. So all of those life experiences, and I was just talking to a group of high school girls last uh, on Monday, and I was telling them, 
do science like a girl. Don't try to be a guy doing science. Like there's this phrase, like you fight like a girl and then the cancer community starts saying, fight like a girl. So I'm saying do STEM like a girl, bring your love of color, bring your love of, of, of um, design and whatever cooking or sewing, bring all of that to the table because maybe you like sewing and you may invent the next new way of developing new sutures that heal faster. Like there's so many ways to show up. So I am, um, I just want to encourage people run your race, mm -hmm. but in the process, there is never a replacement for excellence. So mm -hmm. as much as you can be the straight A student, but if you're not study harder, study longer. And one of the things, that my PhD advisor told me because I was finding it hard to get through the problems. And I'm like, you know, I'm not making the test, the grades on the test. And he said, well, how many times did you repeat the problem? I said, just once. And he was like, you know, Albert Einstein used to do problems 20 times before he mastered the concept. Did you do the problems 20 times? Like, no. But I will say I started mastering the concepts after 12 times. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Smarter than Aston. What makes sense? A black woman smarter than Aston. No, I'm not saying that. That's awesome, Doctor Green. You're you're a real you're a real pioneer in what you're doing. Um, seem to have a great personality, beautiful spirit. Um, we're totally behind what you're doing. We really, really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. And whatever we can ever do for you to help, we'll always be here. Well, thank you so much for this opportunity. And I would like to ask everyone who sees this to please consider making the Aura Lee Smith Cancer Research Foundation your cancer charity of choice. We need your support and we really can usher in a new era of how cancer is treated, but we can't do it without your support. We need your support. So... I want to ask you guys to become monthly donors, even if it's five dollars a month at AuraLeague.org. Now, where else can people find you on the Instagram? Oh yes, yeah. so we're all over social media at AuraLeague.org and at Dr. Hadia Green, and that's D R H A D I Y A H Green, like the color. And we have Cash App and Venmo. You can donate your birthday on Facebook. You can shop on Amazon and make us your charity on Amazon. So you shop on Amazon or Amazon Smile and they will donate for you without charging you extra. So that's the benefit. And when you go live on Instagram, you can donate to us there as well. That's cool. I saw you guys do that when you guys went live on ours. And I never even knew about it. Yeah. So we're <laughs> organization we've been registering everywhere <laughs> right that, that is too cool well, dr green thank you we wish you the best and hopefully we'll talk again i look forward to it thank you so much todd i really appreciate this opportunity this was an excellent interview great job thank you i really appreciate it you made it you made it too team effort all right, all right. <laughs> <laughs> right dr gray have a great one okay thank you you too bye-bye Hey guys, thanks for your time. We will never undervalue your time. We know how important time is. So thank you for taking the time and listening to this episode. Black Friday is coming up. Um, we will be doing some really amazing specials 
at midnight Thanksgiving. So that's Black Friday, 1201. Make sure you go to hbcugraduates.com. Get on our mailing list. Make sure you text us, 312-535-8511 to get on our text list. You'll get, uh, you'll know what's coming before everyone else does. And um, see you on the next episode.